0: Hi, and welcome to Anatomyth. In today's episode, we're focusing on snakes. We'll have a look at some mythical serpents that really should come with their own biohazard warning. And we'll talk about the Norse god Loki's snake venom facial, which also serves as a lesson in what not to do at a dinner party. We'll explore the medical consequences of finding yourself the victim of a snake spit attack. And finally... We'll have a look at a modern day snake venom facial, the kind that comes in a bottle and is way too expensive for a student budget. Anatomyth is a podcast about stories, conjecture, and the human body. Humans have long been using stories as a way to make sense of the world around them. This podcast looks at these stories the myths, legends, lore, and fairy tales, and tries to find an aspect of medicine that fits in with certain aspects of fiction. I'm Audrey, your host. I'm a medical student who's always been interested in such stories, and I love looking for connections, even though they sometimes don't exist. Please remember that any recommendations I might make shouldn't be taken too seriously. I'm not yet a medical professional, and what I say, shouldn't be counted as medical advice. Likewise, the proposed link between myth and medicine shouldn't be counted as fact. This is a podcast that's primarily for entertainment purposes, and it's filled with speculation and conjecture. This is episode two, Warning, external use only. Mythical monsters come in many forms. After all, successfully slaying a monster and saving the damsel in distress are kind of the final exam to being a hero. And mythology would get a little bit boring if we just kept using the same species for every Tom, Dick, and Hercules. And so we've got human-animal hybrids and animal-animal hybrids. And are there hybrids? Medieval bestiaries are pretty much a study in the amount of animals that you can Frankenstein together. And also, we've got things with a severely unbalanced mouth-to-stomach ratio. One of my favorite classes of mythical monsters, though, has got to be the poison breath and spit variety. I mean, I love a good animal hybrid as much as the next person, but... You can't tell me that something with nine heads would make an effective opponent. I'm pretty sure that the heads would either get in each other's way when attacking someone, or else not be on the same page. Also, quadrupeds that are a hodgepodge of so many different animals that their forelegs and hind legs are from different species would probably have a messed up center of gravity, or would have to sort out their leg situation far too often to be efficient. And finally, those with such specific birth requirements that they just barely stop short of needing to be hatched by three different animals under a full moon while facing in a specific direction are not a sustainable source of monsters to kill. But creatures whose very breath is poisonous to everyone but themselves, and who can projectile vomit deadly poison at any hero who dare draw near, Those are the true final level monsters. Bonus points if the monster also has functioning wings. And there's no end to the amount of snakes, serpents and dragons in mythology with poison, breath and spit. Take Fafnir, a Norse monster that is alternately described as either a snake or a dragon. Fafnir didn't actually start out as a snake or a dragon. He was originally a dwarf with the ability to shapeshift, and he killed his father and was corrupted by greed. Clearly, it's an origin story that everyone can sympathize with. He eventually turned into a dragon and retired into the country with his hoard of treasure, breathing poison into the land so that none of the pesky neighbor's kids could come into his yard and steal his treasure. He also struck terror into anyone who dared draw near, which together with the Poison Breath, is a very effective, if rudimentary, security system. Keeping with Norse mythology, there's Jörmungandr, the Midgard Serpent. It's a snake that lived beneath the ocean, circling around the world and biting its own tail. In Ragnarok, the twilight of the Norse gods, where they will fight and, spoiler alert, die and the world as we know it will be destroyed, and all of this will usher in a new world order, and so on and so forth. Basically, in Ragnarok, Jormungandr will rise from the ocean, spraying poison into the sky and the sea of half of the world. There will be a battle between the snake and Thor, a sort of part two to an earlier scuffle when Thor tried to pull it out of the ocean. An endgame, if you will. Thor will eventually kill Jormungandr, but he will also die soon from the snake's venom. In Chinese mythology, Liu is a nine-headed serpentine monster who brings on floods. He spits out poisonous water, which contaminates anything that he so much as breathes on. Any patch of land that he touches or lies upon will also effectively become barren. Xiang Liu is recorded in the bestiary called the Classic of the Mountains and Seas. Very poetic name. It was supposedly written by Yu the Great, who controlled the floods and set up the First Dynasty of China, the Xia Dynasty. Our next serpent comes from a Hindu story about Kaliya and Krishna. Kaliya was a serpent who lived on the banks of the Yamuna River, and Krishna was one of the incarnations of the god Vishnu. It is said that Kalia was so venomous that the waters of the river bubbled with poison, and this story is about a battle between the two, which ends in Kalia's defeat and subsequent forgiveness and return to his original home of Ramanak But I promised you guys a snake venom facial, and not just a list of mythical snakes with a dreaded death spit. So, let's return to Norse mythology and talk about Loki. If you've seen some of the Marvel movies, you'll know that Loki is a trickster god from Norse mythology. I wanna say that he's a fairly typical trickster god. He's clever and cunning, he can shapeshift, and kind of lives for drama. He's got a pretty complicated relationship with the other gods. Sometimes he's a companion to Thor or Odin, and other times he causes no end of mischief for the Aesir or the gods of Asgard. This leads to consequences that range from a little wild, like, I don't know, having your own eight-legged horse baby, to pretty horrific, like the punishment that we're going to talk about now. But first, a little backstory to Loki's punishment. So one day, Aegir, who's a god of the sea and not to be confused with the Aesir, Aegir holds a massive feast. He's invited the gods of Asgard and the altar, or the elves, and he's serving some really good meat. So good, in fact, that everyone's praising his two servants, Fimafeng and Eldir. Loki, probably either enraged or jealous at the attention they were getting, just up and kills Fimafeng, in the hall, right in front of everyone. Kind of an excessive way to get people's attention, but I mean it worked, so I can't really fault it. Obviously, the only acceptable response to having someone murdered right in front of you at a party is to chase the murderer out. And that's exactly what the gods did. They chased Loki out and all the way into a forest, and then they promptly returned to the hall to drink some more mead. I mean, it was really good mead. Loki, a little later, strolls back into the hall because, well, it is a party after all, and he's never been averse to a little tension and drama. Before he can enter, He comes across Eldir, Aegir's other servant. He's standing guard at the door, and they exchange a few words. Eldir warns him that whatever he plans on doing will come back to him threefold. Loki just brushes this off, however, and continues with his mission to wreak havoc. A very dramatic, brief hush descends on the crowd once Loki enters the hall. But it's soon overtaken by petty insults and name-calling. Bragi, one of the gods, basically tells Loki that he can't sit with them. But it turns out that Loki can actually sit with them. The trickster god reminds Odin of a pact that they made when they were much younger, in which Odin swore that he would never drink beer unless it was offered to both him and Loki. So... Loki gets a seat at the table, and the insults start flying back and forth. At first, it's just between Loki and Bragi. Loki calls the other the Bench's Pride, saying that he's the least brave of all of the gods and elves, and that he's only got a big mouth when he's seated. And just as a side note, I think that benchs Pride is a pretty good burn, even by today's standards. Pretty soon, though, the other gods get in on the fight. Eden, Braggy's wife, interrupts and begs her husband to stop with all of the testosterone-filled talk. Loki tells Eden to shut up and basically calls her boy crazy, which, coming from the guy who birthed an actual horse, is kind of rich. Gefion, another goddess, confronts Loki and... Loki responds in kind. Odin then asks Loki if he's crazy, because he's risking Gefion's anger. And Gefyon knows everyone's destinies, just about as well as he, Odin, does. Loki, knowing a rhetorical question when he hears one, accuses Odin of favoritism among mortals. Which, to be fair, is something that gods in mythology are pretty known for. And Odin fires back that Loki is one to talk. I'm not gonna lie. It's very kindergartner, na uh yeah uh between the two for a bit. And then Frigg says that Loki is unable to keep his mouth shut around mortals. Loki bites back that she's one to talk, as the goddess herself is too fond of said mortals. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Frigg doesn't directly respond to this. She's too good for that kind of thing. Instead wishing out loud that if only her son Baldur were there, he'd have defended her honor. And this is where things start to get really bad for Loki. See, Baldur was kind of the golden child. He was one of Odin and Frigg's sons, and it's said that he was beloved by everyone, and that he actually, literally, radiated light. Prior to this party, Balder had died. Now we know that he'd been killed as a result of Loki's doing, and deliberately. Not in some accidental, bizarre, roundabout way like in the Great Tragedies. Furthermore, the gods had negotiated with Hel, spelt with a single L, who was the goddess of the Norse underworld. Hel agreed to let Balder leave the underworld. On the one condition that everything, and I do mean everything, on earth mourned him. Unfortunately, there was one person who wouldn't mourn for the god of light. A giantess named Thok, who was really just Loki in disguise. Now we know this, but the gods, up until now, don't. So I don't really know what's going on in Loki's head. But I think that by this time, he may have had just a bit too much to drink. Because he says that he's the reason Baldur's not there. For what it's worth, I've got to admire Loki's guts. Here he is, antagonizing everyone at this party. The same party that he was just chased out of on account of killing someone. And now he's even confessing to Baldur's murder and extended and permanent stay in hell. It would make sense for the whole fiasco to end here. The mystery of Baldr's death and the giantess is solved, the gods are sufficiently shocked and enraged, and Loki gets punished. But no, it goes on for a bit longer, during which time Loki spills a lot more tea. This god was once a hostage that goddess was unfaithful, this other god had a kid with his sister, it's all very Game of Thrones. But amid all this back and forth, there's one especially noteworthy comment. A goddess named Skadi tells Loki that very soon he'll be bound to a rock by the entrails of his dead son. I mention this because this comes up in like a few minutes. So everything comes to a head when Thor enters the scene. He wasn't there previously. And he tells Loki to shut up, threatening him with his trusty hammer, Mjolnir. At the start, Loki gives him the same treatment he's been giving the other gods, but lays off after a bit, dusting off his hands and hightailing it out of there. So you might be thinking that there was definitely some poor decision-making on Loki's end, throughout this entire series of events. And I'm inclined to agree with you. No worries, though, because Loki has an escape plan in mind. And now, we come to the flight and punishment of Loki. So Loki flees to the mountains, and he builds a hut with one door to each of the four directions. This way, he'll see when Odin sends his messengers to punish him and he can escape by the opposite door. Loki turns into a salmon during the day to hide. Now, a salmon wouldn't exactly be my first choice of escape animal, but I guess it's as good a creature as any other when you're running away from someone like the Allfather, and you haven't discovered tardigrades yet. The trickster god, always one to plan ahead, tries to figure out escape contingencies. Sure, he turns into a fish during the day to hide, but a plan B was always a good thing to have. He figures out that, well, maybe there's a way to catch fish, and fishing nets are a thing. So, he starts to make a net to try and figure out how he can escape from it. And in one of the best examples of bad timing This is exactly when he sees the other gods on the horizon. Hurriedly, he throws the net into the fire and escapes by the opposite door, just like he had planned. He turns into a fish and jumps into the water to hide. At this point, the gods have reached Loki's hut. Unfortunately for Loki, the net hadn't completely burnt yet, and the gods were able to create another net from the remains of the first one. When they finish, they all troop down to the riverbed, and they cast the net. So the first time, they cast it so lightly that it floated past Loki who was hiding between two rocks. The second time, the gods weighed it so heavily that it raked the riverbed. They're preparing to cast it a third time, and Loki sees his opportunity. He swims onwards towards the sea and tries to leap over the net into a waterfall, and the Aesir go after him. Thor actually catches Loki. However, being in fish form and really slippery, Loki nearly escaped, if Thor hadn't gripped him very tightly by the tail. And it's said that this is the reason why salmon, even today, have such very fine tails. Having caught Loki, they drag him into a cave, and in the true mythic traditions of punishing children for their parents' fault, the gods take two of Loki's children, Vali and Nari, and they change one into a wolf, who then tears his brother to pieces and devours him. The gods then take the intestines of the fallen brother and use it to secure Loki onto the points of rocks and then afterwards transform these cords into iron. You might remember that earlier I very specifically pointed out a prediction made by the goddess Skadi. She said that Loki would be bound to a rock by the entrails of his dead son, and a serpent would be suspended over him. Well, here was Loki, bound between a rock and a hard place, or another rock and a serpent was suspended over him, so that the venom would fall onto his face, drop by drop. As each drop hits his skin, Loki is left in excruciating pain, and he shakes so violently that the earth shakes with him. Now Loki has a wife named Seguna, and she's described as a very faithful wife. So what she does is she takes a cup and holds it over him. She catches these drops of venom into the cup so that they wouldn't fall on Loki. But eventually the cup does fill, And so whenever she has to go and empty the cup, the venom falls upon Loki and he single handedly becomes responsible for earthquakes. While getting snake venom into your eyes can be very painful, I doubt that any of us would have the strength to, quite literally, make the ground shake. But we'll find out more about that, right after this. For centuries, theriac has been used the world over as an antidote to bites from just about any venomous animal. And while theriac has worked wonders, The Guild of Physicians has recently taken it just one step further. Their improved recipe works as a panacea, to be taken by anyone, at any time, and for any illness. This premium thuryaca andromache is made with over 60 all-natural and ethically sourced ingredients, including cinnamon, lavender, incense, viper flesh, turpentine, and opium all mixed in with honey to help it go down. Theriaca andromache, now available at your nearest apothecary. So poison saliva, as you may have figured out by now, is not a real thing. I guess it makes sense Yes, it's another way in which reality has been found lacking, but I also highly doubt that humans, and quite probably a few other animal species, would have survived to evolve into what they are today if there were reptiles out there that could pretty much just lick anything to death. It also just seems like such an environmental hazard to have a widespread animal species that can make the ground barren. However, while there didn't seem to be any animals that could kill humans and lay waste to entire ecosystems just through their saliva, I did find a kind of bootleg but real-life version of toxic snake spit. The thing about snakes is that they generally have to bite their targets in order to deliver venom into their targets' bodies. This is because skin and, you know, fur, scales, feathers, whatever else animals have on their bodies, these are a pretty solid barrier against toxins. And venom on unbroken skin won't really bring on the dreaded effects of a snake bite. Okay, so I did read that there can sometimes be some delayed blistering if snake venom comes into contact with human skin. But on the whole, the venom only comes into full effect once it enters the blood. Also, snake venom is generally harmless when swallowed because the proteins in the venom get broken down by our stomach acid. Although, you might want to make sure that there are no cuts within your mouth through which the venom can enter. This is probably a good point to talk about the differences between venomous and poisonous. While these two terms tend to be used interchangeably, the difference is that venom is injected, whereas poison needs to be eaten, inhaled, or absorbed. To quote something that's been floating around the internet for a few years, If you bite it and you die, it's poisonous. If it bites you and you die, it's venomous." Quote. The bottom line here is that if you ever find yourself in a Loki-esque situation, well, first of all, maybe question the bad decisions that you made that got you to this point. But after that, remember that as long as the venom gets onto your skin or in your mouth, then you'll probably be fine. If the venom gets into your eyes though, then you'd get what's called venom ophthalmia or alternatively ocular envenomation which are really just two fancy medical terms for saying that you have venom in your eyes and this can spell big trouble now i don't want to say that this happens frequently exactly but in some parts of the world venom ophthalmia isn't uncommon either see Some snakes don't bother with biting people, and instead have evolved to just fling their spit at you. And although the spit only reaches between 1 to 2 meters, these are very dangerous because the snakes aim not just for your face, but particularly at the eyes. Spitting cobras, which in particular are known for this defensive maneuver, also move their heads in a circular motion in order to coordinate their target's movements and ensure that the venom is well distributed. And the really cool thing about this is that the spray pattern isn't fixed. A study which investigated two species of spitting cobras found that they can match their venom distribution to the size of their target. There are various species of spitting cobras and nearly all of them are members of the genus Naja. These snakes can be found in Asia and Africa, and the one single spitting cobra that isn't a member of the genus is also found in Africa. It's called the ring-house or ringneck spitting cobra, and its scientific name is Haemocytus haemocytus. I kind of like to think of it as the moon-moon of the snake world. Besides spitting cobras, keelback snakes of the genus Rhabdifus are also capable of spit attacks, which result in ocular envenomation. So yeah, especially in parts of Asia and Africa where these snakes reside, venom ophthalmia does occur. The most common features of venom ophthalmia are pain, eyelid inflammation and spasms, also called blepharitis and blepharospasm, hyperemia, which is just increased blood flow to a particular part of the body, and injury to the cornea. Here's a quick introduction to eye structures before we get any further. There are three general layers, ranging from the outermost part inward. Think of it like peeling an onion. In this episode, we'll only talk about the outer two layers, and only very briefly, because those are the more important in these attacks. So the outermost layer consists of the cornea and sclera. Whenever you look at your eyes in the mirror, you would see like a white part surrounding the iris. So the white part is the sclera. The sclera and the cornea are continuous with each other. And the cornea is this transparent structure right in the center of the eye, covering both the pupil and iris. We'll talk about these two a bit later when we get to the second layer. But for now, let's just focus on the cornea. As I already mentioned, the cornea is transparent, and it sits right in the middle of the eye. As a result, it's the first exposed tissue in cases of venom sped ophthalmia. And so, it makes sense that corneal erosion and swelling are common in these cases. Injuring the cornea can cause blurred vision or even blindness which, unfortunately, can be a result of venom spit if treatment is either delayed or not administered at all. So that's the bad news. The good news is that cases usually never get this bad, and we'll talk about why a bit later. In addition to the cornea, other parts of the eye can also become inflamed. Conjunctivitis and uveitis, for example, can also occur Before you get intimidated by these terms, remember that the suffix itis just basically refers to inflammation. So conjunctivitis is just inflammation of the conjunctiva, which is a structure that lines the inside of the eyelids and also covers the sclera. So that's enough of the outermost layer. Now let's talk about the layer right underneath this. This second layer is sometimes called the vascular layer, or also the uvea. If that rings any bells, it's because I just mentioned uveitis, which is inflammation of the uvea. So this vascular layer consists of the iris, the ciliary body, and the choroid. The choroid provides most of the eyeball's blood supply allowing the uvea to live up to its alternate name of the vascular layer. And, as already mentioned, the iris is the bit that surrounds the pupil and sometimes comes in different colors. The pupil itself is actually just a hole, which allows for the passage of fluid. Although the choroid provides most of the eyeball's blood supply, we have parts of the eye which are not vascularized at all. There's no blood flow going to these parts, which means that there's no way to deliver oxygen and no way to remove dirt and debris. The way we get around this is the aqueous humor. The aqueous humor is the fluid that passes through the pupil, providing oxygen and nutrients and removing waste. It's constantly produced by the ciliary body, which is the other structure that's found in the uvea. So that's enough of anatomy for now. Let's talk about snake venom. Snake venom has many different components, and some of these components are proteolytic enzymes. Proteolytic enzymes are just enzymes which degrade other proteins, and these basically are responsible for the swelling and inflammation of the eye. When these enzymes degrade proteins, they trigger the release of substances which dilate the blood vessels, leading to leakage of fluids and finally to swelling. Neurotoxins are also present in snake venom, and impaired pupillary constriction can be another result of spitting cobra attacks. This, together with corneal injury and uveitis, can lead to photophobia, which is excessive sensitivity to or even intolerance of light. Compared to spitting cobra ophthalmia, There are fewer reported cases of keelback spit attacks. These two tend to share some similarities in how they present. Besides being painful, the conjunctiva and cornea also tend to be involved in keelback spit attacks, very similar to venomophthalmia by a spitting cobra. There's usually inflammation, swelling, and even clouding of the cornea, which can lead to blurry vision. Remember that the cornea is a structure that is transparent, and should remain transparent. It's the first structure that light passes through, so think of it kind of like a window. We can't see through windows when they're cloudy. In addition to the proteolytic enzymes, keelback venom also contains something called bufadienolides. These are neurotoxins which come from the toads that they eat. This is because these snakes, in addition to not having to bite their prey, are also capable of storing toxins from the food that they eat for later use. They're honestly kind of winning the whole evolution gig. So why are these particular neurotoxins important? Well, bufadienolides interfere with the structures that maintain the transparency of the cornea. And as we already mentioned, A non-transparent cornea is not a good thing. They also interfere with the secretion of aqueous humor into the cornea. So, on top of the cornea becoming blurry, it also doesn't have its food delivery and waste removal system. You can kind of guess what's going to happen to a cornea in this situation. I briefly mentioned that not administering treatment fast enough can result in blindness. But it usually doesn't get this bad. Most patients who've been spat at by snakes wash their eyes out as soon as possible, even before getting to the hospital. And washing out your eyes is generally the first thing to do in case anything painful or even just irritating gets into them. That's why it's printed on the backs of everything from shampoo to bleach bottles under what to do in case some of this product gets into your eyes. Although additional treatment may be required at the hospital, most complications do tend to disappear after a few days. And this is generally attributed to immediate washing out of the eye, which decontaminates it and prevents further damage. And just to illustrate how important removing snake venom is to retaining your vision, There's a species of spitting cobra found in Nigeria, called N. nigricolis. And there have been reports of severe damage to the cornea after an attack by one of these. The damage can even lead to permanent blindness. And the theory is that it's because this toxin has such a high affinity for the cornea, that even washing out the eye doesn't really remove it. Okay, so wash your eye out before you get to the hospital, and hope that you weren't spat at by N. nigricolis. But what happens at the hospital? Unfortunately, antivenom therapy doesn't seem to be effective in cases of venom spit ophthalmia. So what they use for treatment instead are antibiotics and anesthetic eye drops. The silver lining in all of this though is that there has been no record of anyone who died from snake spit in their eye. In fact, there's no evidence at all that venom can spread from the eyes and into the blood. And after all of the potential conditions that can result from venom spit in the eye, at least we don't also have to deal with systemic envenomation, or basically snake venom in the blood. Now, here's one last point, because scientific advances are pretty cool and beauty trends can sometimes reflect how far we've come. I recently found out about Snake Venom Facial Creams, which are exactly what they sound like. These are skincare products made with Snake Venom extracts in them, or more specifically, a synthetic version of Snake Venom. And there's a whole host of these products as well, Everything from eye creams to moisturizers to cleansers and serums and so on. Basically, anything that you can put on your skin. They've got it with synthetic snake venom. These products are a kind of topical Botox, boasting anti-aging effects like anti-wrinkling, reducing fine lines, tightening, and all that stuff that you would normally expect from a Botox injection. The snake venom-like ingredient in these products is called synake or cynaque. I really have no idea how to properly pronounce that. I tried watching videos, and what I found was three different ways to pronounce it. So I'm just gonna try and stay away from saying that too much. Anyway, this is a synthetic tripeptide, which was developed by Pentaform Limited, and it mimics the effects of waglerin one Waglerin 1 is a neurotoxin that's found in the temple viper, Tropidolimus wagleri, also called the pit viper, and found in Southeast Asia. The toxin has a muscle relaxing effect, which is just a very understated way of saying that it paralyzes your muscles. So, how do these products work? Wrinkles form because our facial muscles contract in certain repeated patterns whenever we smile or laugh or make just about any other facial expression or movement. This repeated stretching of the skin, together with natural aging processes, causes it to lose its elasticity and results in the formation of lines and wrinkles. Cynic, like Botox, works by temporarily paralyzing facial muscles, reducing muscular contractions, and thereby keeping the skin smooth, at least for a little while. These snake venom creams also contain ingredients that are found in other skincare products, such as collagen and hyaluronic acid, which are meant to aid the anti-aging effects. I haven't tried any of these products, and I'm not trying to advertise them. I just love how humans have always had a knack for seeing something which causes harm and using it to our advantage, whether it's for revenge, healing, or even cosmetic purposes. I think it's great how we can go big scary snake that can kill you in one exhale, but also if I harvest it, who knows what I'll achieve. So that's it for today. In our next episode, We're stepping away from Norse mythology and snakes and we'll have a look at horns and specifically a Chinese creator god and a Japanese mountain recluse. If you like the show, please subscribe to it on your preferred podcast app and please rate the show and leave a review. It helps to get the word out about the show and I really appreciate getting feedback. Also, tell your friends about it. You can also reach the show on social media, whether it's to suggest a topic, discuss alternative escape plans for Loki, or just say hi. Also, let me know what other ancient insults you think would top calling someone the Bench's pride. You can find the show on Twitter, at AnatomythPod, and on Instagram and Facebook at Anatomyth. You can also send an email to audrey at anatomyth.com. Links to the website and social media are in the show notes. I'm Audrey, your host, and this was Anatomyth. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.